Welcome to Electricians and Mad Men. I'm Ian Gorman. My guest today is Jeff Michael, owner and engineer of Big Sky Recording in Ann Arbor. Jeff has been a cornerstone of the Michigan music scene for decades, working with artists such as Joshua Davis, the Great Lakes Myth Society, Dick Siegel, Peter Madcat Ruth, Jill Jack, Lathal Sadi, Hot Club of Detroit, and Whitey Morgan. Jeff has also recorded hundreds of live in-studio performances for Michigan Radio's Acoustic Cafe, featuring internationally known stars like Iron and Wine, Suzanne Vega, Death Cab for Cutie, and Dar Williams. We talked in March of 2018 in Big Sky's main tracking room among his collection of beautiful instruments and classic microphones. So I've been here for about 15 years, and as we were talking earlier, when I first got it, it was just, I was sort of moving quickly from another studio I was at, and so I was just looking for a place, actually with windows, I was originally looking for like a a house to rent, but I just couldn't find anything that didn't seem fraught with problems, and then, you know, I can't really do construction in in a rental house. So I found this place that had windows and it was, the studio room was really live. It had like cement floors and um, steel roof and it sounded awesome for rock drums and some stuff. And then just sort of gradually over time, we built um, some of these ISO rooms and kind of tamed the room down and deadened the ceiling and put in the, the wood floor. And so it's it's changed quite a bit over the years into like more isolation, more control. Mm-hmm. But it's still got, you know, we're talking in the main live room right now, which, you know, if you, we'll put in the show notes links and that kind of thing, if you want to look at pictures of the place. And uh, it, it's it's comfy, but it's got a really nice live feel. It seems like you could have a live band here really comfortably. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you can still get a nice, you know, drum room sound. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what I, that's what the goal is. Sure. You know, it's just that we, when the, when it's too live and too metal, metallic sounding, like too bright and sizzly, it was just a little uncontrolled for for some band stuff, especially more acoustic. Yeah. Kind of when you built this place, did you design the rooms yourself or did you have... <laughs> yeah. A... I mean, design is maybe too strong a uh-huh. word because the, there's a wall... Sorry, I keep turning around to look at the wall. There's a wall... <laughs> um, between the control room area and the studio area. And that was part of the reason I moved in because that wall was actually already here with glass in it. It had been sort of like, oh wow, um, you know, that TV show Taxi, mm-hmm. that was like the office part of Taxi and the studio room was mm-hmm. like where the guys worked on, uh-huh. uh, I think they worked on like coin operated laundry machines here or something. Wow. So um, it was kind of already set up to go. I was like, yeah, I can make that work. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's very cool. One thing that you showed me when we walked through before the interview that I've never seen in another studio that I think is really brilliant is the ISO booth here that has the wall that can open up. Right. So recently it. we built an ISO booth big enough for the grand piano. And you can also put a kit in there or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so the issue is to be able to take the piano in and out, It's it's got to be pretty wide opening. And I've been to other studios where they try to use double doors Mm-hmm. which are very expensive and doesn't do a great job. I mean, unless it's like a super expensive studio with really expensive doors. Mm-hmm. But even then, because it's a pretty wide opening, it's like seven feet, maybe mm-hmm. six feet. Um, so yeah, it's actually just a wall section that you can slide out 
and we can roll it out. I usually roll it on like a couple drumsticks so it mm-hmm. rolls easily. Nice. So one person can move it. And um it works it works great. How did you get into audio? Were you a musician first? Yeah, I was I was in um bands and back in the day of, you know, bar bands, like cover bands and we played three or four nights a week. And I was also into electronics and computers. And uh, I started actually, um, my friend who was in the band, Ben Gross, he started a studio in his basement, Pearl Sound. And I was involved in that. And I was sort of partners on that. And then we later built the Pearl Sound on Ford Road. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how I started with just doing that. But it was, you know, before that, I was recording stuff with like two cassette decks where you'd record a little guitar uh-huh. and something on one and then push play on that deck and add overdub onto another deck. So, did, yeah. Did you find yourself kind of being the guy in your bands early on that was doing all that yeah, kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. And then just mm-hmm. gradually, you know, four track, like a TX. Yeah, so I did stuff in bands and I did a lot of electronic stuff. I used to like modify guitar amps and mm. build that kind of stuff. So it was kind of a natural fit. Mm. Did um, did you start by working for other studios and getting in that way, or did you just start by building your own gear and working with bands directly? It was mostly just that. It was like at the at Pearl Sound at Ben in Ben's basement. Mm. We started recording stuff, and in, in my basement, just sort of recording our own band and then other people. Um, but no, I never, I actually really wish that I had. I wish that there had been sort of like the old fashioned formal, like you go assist at a big studio and work your way up. And um, I feel like that would have saved a lot of learning time, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, because you spend so much time like fighting sort of bad arrangements or bad playing or bad so I mean no offense to that but when you're <laughs> uh, when you're first starting in bad tones uh-huh. and you're sort of trying to fix things at least this is how I think about it now you're trying to fix things and wrestle with problems where later you sort of learn to take a different approach to, to avoid the problems things. in the first yeah, place yeah yeah so I feel like people that are lucky enough to to do that to start through or people just that are really talented and smart right off the bat. <laughs> well, it's also different nowadays because, you know, there's infinite YouTube videos and that sort yeah, of thing yeah. and uh, Mix with the Masters and all that stuff where uh, I, I got to imagine when you were starting out, it was more like you learned from people or yeah. you learned through trial and error. Yeah. Well, and actually another thing we used to do a lot, which is sort of what you're doing with this blog, is go around to other studios and just mm-hmm. see how things were set up. And yeah, because there, no, there was no YouTube, like you couldn't easily get a feel for what another studio is like or how people set stuff up. And right. So, so Pearl Sound started as a home studio? Yeah. Is that right? Yep. It was in, in Ben's basement. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it uh, eventually grew to the point that you, did you get a traditional commercial facility? Yeah. Form? Yeah. It's uh-huh. a, it's a, it's a big building on Ford Road and we sort of, we spent a lot of time and money remodeling that uh-huh. in the studio and it's still going. It's more of like a hard rock kind of place but um and then ben eventually sold it we we split up and then he eventually sold it and moved to la mm. and started a studio out there mm-hmm. you know we, we talked a little bit earlier about all the natural light that you have in the control room uh and, and thusly indirectly in the tracking room through the control room and uh talking about 
just, you know, kind of quality of work life and that sort of thing. What kind of things, when it came time for you to really build your own place, this spot, Big Sky, what kind of things were you thinking about that you wanted to incorporate into here in the way of design or features? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of tough because... um, well, we were talking about this earlier. So I, I, I was involved in Pearl Sound, and we built that, and we had some plans for the control room from Westlake Audio, and they were sort of consultants, but we really designed the rest of it ourselves. And then I, I was also involved at Temper Mill, which is a really nice studio in Ferndale, um, and I sort of helped with the design of that and the construction of that, and I used to work engineer down there a lot. Mm-hmm. And then I had engineered at uh, White Room Studios in Detroit, so I had worked, and then there was another studio in a house that I worked at for a couple of years in Detroit. And then I'd sort of gotten out of it, started the little studio, Al's Audio Diner. And then eventually I thought, well, you know what? I really want to move to this place, like find a, find a place on my own and, you know, start a studio. Sure. And I think the main thing, yeah, it's just sort of comfort and light, like we were talking about, light in the control room a really comfortable place and a place where clients would feel, you know, really private and, um, Mm -hmm. and relaxed. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, again, we were talking about this earlier, but the, I strive for the same thing. Like I, it's more important to have the clients comfortable, you know, the musicians, everybody, because, you know, the truth is like a good take beats good engineering Mm -hmm. any day. So if somebody gets a better vocal take while they're playing guitar or while there's a little bleed or they're not wearing headphones or they did it at home, if, mm-hmm. it's, if it's a better take, it's a better take, and that's what counts. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's mostly been my focus when I think about this studio or, or really engineering anywhere, but that was certainly what I was shooting for here. Yeah, absolutely. And that comes across, you know, I know through the work that you do here, it's obviously a spot that musicians feel really comfortable and uh, can really do some soul bearing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a very private thing, you know, Mm -hmm. it's very tough. It's tough, especially to sing. When you're working with a singer, so much of getting a great vocal performance to me is more psychological and emotional and spiritual and all of that than it is technical in a lot of ways. What kind of tools do you have as an engineer or producer to really help musicians through that process? That's a great question because, you know, I mean, for I think for all engineers, that's like a real, like, point of where you have strong feelings about that. Like, when I hear somebody in a band tell a singer to sing from their diaphragm, I want to <laughs> <I wanna laughs> clock them. <laughs> like, uh-huh. I just, I don't think that's going to help. Um, yeah, I guess... So there's a couple things. There's making sure they're in a physical situation where they're comfortable. And some people, you know, get their best take live with the band. There's like a whole, I think there's a whole philosophy about that. Like, I feel like sometimes that's just the right amount of pressure because you don't want to, you don't want to make a mistake and a gross mistake, like in the arrangement, you want to sing well, but you don't want to really show off. And so I feel like it maybe it sometimes gets the right for some people, that's exactly the right amount of, of reining in for a singer. Um, so there's physically like, are they in the bigger room? Are they in the booth? Um, lighting, um, 
are they sitting or standing? A lot of times, if it's like a piano player that's singing, I'll encourage them to sit because they're used to sitting while they play or mm-hmm. to sit at a piano. Or same with if it's a guitar player that sits usually, then like why make somebody stand if they're used to always singing when they mm-hmm. sit? So it's their their physical situation. Um, mic choice, I mean, like most engineers, sometimes I'll have a guess what would be a good mic and then sometimes we'll set up a couple mics and then, and preamps and all that. And then trying to get it so it's really comfortable in their headphones. If they, some people, you know, a little bit of reverb, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Um, Checking, speaking of geeky stuff, but checking the phase between Mm -hmm. the mic and their headphones. Sometimes you flip the phase and it sounds much fuller. Mm, Just in the headphones. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's the sound that you hear like through your bones plus the sound coming in through the headphones. Mm. So depending on which way the phase is, probably in many studios, it's all wired carefully so that everything (laughs) is in phase. But Uh here it's sometimes a crapshoot. So I usually check that. Like I'll go in and talk talk through the mic and make sure that the phase is adding so Mm. it feels thicker. Um, So yeah, like, I mean, there are people that you can spend a lot of time getting it right in the headphones. and then a lot of people sing better with a little compression because it feels more effortless, mm. but some people don't. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of feeling all that out. And then then there's the whole other part of your question, which I have an even less <laughs> concise mm-hmm. response to, yeah. but like how, when you're talking with us, you know, when you're sort of coaching mm-hmm. um, and I'm... I'm not a singer and I definitely err on the side of saying less and not trying to focus on any particular thing um, and trying to build confidence. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, trying to keep track of what takes I think are good. So I'm a big pack rat of playlists. How much would you say your role sways between engineer and producer on the so work I think as I've gotten older, I'm better at differentiating that. I think when I was younger, I figured I could, you know, help in quotes, mm-hmm. any band. And I think now I really try to only, especially if it's actually something where I'm going to be getting credit as producer, which I'm not sure mm-hmm. how often that should be, only with something where I really think I understand people and what they're going for and the genre of music and like exactly what, um, Mm -hmm. what, what we're trying to do. Um, I mean, I feel like I'm not a heavy handed guy at all with the, with that kind of thing. So usually in a project where it's not just sort of a band, you're not just sort of documenting what the band does or what the artist does, but where you're working on parts and trying to change things around and shifting the vibe of a song. I feel like that's just such a collaborative thing, you know? So Mm -hmm. I throw out some ideas and if one in four is good, you know, that's good. As long as you toss the bad ones (laughs) kind of quickly. Yeah. I got to think that, you know, at a studio like this, you work with a wide range of artists from people that are some of the most experienced in 
the music realm to people that are probably really might even be their first time in a real professional studio. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I got to think that your approach probably changes depending on the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So I think that one thing that changes in the approach is, and this also depends on budget, but is how much are you willing to change what the song is now? How much are you willing to dig into the arrangement and change it or really, you know, change the tempo or change, add a part or take out a part. or So I feel like sometimes the real virtue that people that are more studio experienced have is that they can't, they can easily, especially once they know the song, they can easily change what they're doing or tweak what they're doing to make it fit what they're hearing. Mm-hmm. Whereas for people that are new, it's just, there's just so much that, that, really you're going to be best off. You're probably best off with just getting whatever mm-hmm. they do. You could really throw them. Yeah. With yeah. A, and a so, and yeah, there's just too much and it's mm-hmm. too difficult to change, to change the way they're yeah. doing something. So you just, you try to get the best of what, what you're getting, mm-hmm. but that can also be with people that are experienced too. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, and the reverse can be true. Mm-hmm. So, but I do, I think in general, people that have recorded a lot sort of have a lot of ideas and see or a lot of people seem to have an endless, endless mm-hmm. supply of good ideas and ways to change mm-hmm. what they're doing. Well, you know, tied in with that is something that more and more engineers are dealing with these days, which is collaborating with musicians that are also recording from home or just about the, the mobility of files these days and how it's happening all over the place where someone sends a track up to another town for an overdub and back and that sort of thing. How do you find yourself working with musicians that are looking to piece this together with their own home studio work, that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm all for it for the most part. I, I, and it's, it's more and more a part of what I do. I mean, early on, I, I thought that was, it's pretty cool Mm because there's a lot of stuff people can do at home And if they can track stuff here and mix stuff here or mix it wherever. um, It's incredibly empowering for artists. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think kind of a lot of me thinks like it's only fair. Like it was sort of unfair that you had to go to a studio Mm -hmm. to, you know, work on backup vocals, Mm -hmm. you know, to work on your parts. And so now somebody can spend five hours at home working on working on parts for a little thing. And, and you know, sometimes there's a quality gap to bridge with people's home setups. Yeah. But a lot of musicians I find, especially the more experienced ones, you know, they may not be able to like engineer a full band session, but they got a vocal mic they sound good on and they know how to get a level on it. And Yeah, absolutely. Or like electric guitar or something. That's mm-hmm. totally stuff you can do at home. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I find myself frequently saying, like, well, you can do that at home. Like, just mm-hmm. cut that at home. Yeah. And then, like, there's – you probably have this, too, like a network of other musicians now. Like, there's a drummer in um, Lansing that we do a lot of stuff with. Mm-hmm. And um, so he just – you know, we send him tracks. He sends stuff back. Yep. I've, I have a drummer friend who has a, a just a home studio kit that's set up and mic'd up all the time. Yep. So he can just do freelance studio sessions from his home. Yep. And Andy Reid, do you know Andy mm-hmm, Reid? Sure. So Andy plays like this. I'm working on a record now with Nick Punty, and um, Andy plays bass on everything. And we always just 
send him the track, he sends it back. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's another great thing is the collaboration between engineers has never been easier than it is now either. You know, uh, not too long ago to send reels or whatever to another studio would be a huge deal. Yeah. And and nowadays you can just fly around, you know, files all over the place. And as, uh, as a product of that... I'm working with other engineers all the time, and these projects are getting a lot more depth to them just through the different hands on them. That's yeah, the yeah. No, it's nice. And yeah. I was thinking also on this project, Dave Feeney from the Temper Mill, he played pedal steel on a song. Mm-hmm. Same thing. I mean, it's funny because it's nice because they are sort of our peers too. Like these are the people that we, you know, we're friends with too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And gear, I should say, just mm-hmm. on the side, like, well, it's not related to flying in tracks, but I was <laughs> Like these this, these headphone boxes mm-hmm. came from Jim when he sold his oh, place yeah. and moved. I bought yeah. his talkback system. And uh, actually, this mic that I'm talking into came from Jim, too. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, give us a rundown for a little bit on what, what kind of signal chain we're talking through right now. So you are in the U48, mm-hmm. the Neumann, um, which is running into a V76 Telefunken, mm-hmm. which, oh, I could have run it through some compression. I should have for this, <laughs> but I, I did uh-huh. not. Um, we have to give a listener something to do on their own. Yeah. They can compress later. <laughs> you can like. compress it. But I would I usually would run vocals through these Neve compressors. I have the um the skinny ones, the 33609 mm-hmm. ones, which are just amazing. And like I never I never like, oh, I shouldn't have I wish I hadn't have hadn't compressed it. <laughs> right. I I just yeah. I never with that compressor, I'm always uh-huh. like, Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Um and then, yeah, so this Kiwi is then just in the, um, I think it's a Chandler. It's like a 1272 Neve mm-hmm. uh, style. Sweet. And that's the blue Kiwi, is that Yeah, right? the blue Sweet. Kiwi. Yeah. Which I really like for like voiceover stuff and for rap. Mm-hmm. And I don't use it a ton else. Mm-hmm. There's occasional singers that sound good on it, but it's very precise, a little... Mm-hmm. A little more precise, maybe, than... Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I, I would think a lot of the time, if you're doing rap or you're, or you're doing some kind of, uh, uh, you know, voiceover spoken word thing, precise is what you're looking for, yeah. where for a lot of singers, you, you might want it to be a little blurrier. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's interesting. When so many people talk about cleanliness of, of mics or preamps or compressors or whatever, it's like a lot of the time, that's not what you want. You want something that's going to color the sound in a certain way or... Yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, it's just some little subtle, subtle mm-hmm. amount of magic. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah. I had an audio teacher once uh, make an analogy to candlelight. And, oh right, of know, course. Yeah, it's like really photo- nice. yeah, it's uh, yeah. for photography. Yeah, it's like lighting. Yeah. Oh, I never. That's great. Yeah. At Big Sky here, do you have assistants or interns? I do. Um, they they sort of go in phases. Like you know, people they start a few interns and then. Usually somebody catches on, and there was a guy here, um, Zach Glizio, for about four or five years, started as an intern when he was still at U of M, and he came through the PAT program at U of M, which is Performance Audio and Technology, I think, Mm -hmm. which is a great, it's been a great program. There's been a lot of, like, um, uh, did you know uh, Tomek? Minarowski, guitar player, engineer, producer. He moved to New York, but he came out of that program too. And um, he got really good at doing sessions and we got into building a lot of gear and he had a double E 
degree as well, electrical mm-hmm. engineering. Wow. And we got into fixing stuff and we were fixing the touchy tube mics. And um, he went to Nashville sort of because um, he had a buddy that he could stay in his house and immediately got a good job at an uh, engineering job at um, uh, a nice studio there, whose oh, name I forget. <laughs> and then he got hired away by... Because a, a engineer from um, the Zach Brown band, they have a studio called Southern Ground in Nashville, which is really beautiful studio. He came in to do a session at the studio Zach was working at, and he was like, "Wow, this is like the smoothest I've ever had a session run here. Like everything's working, everything's perfect." So they hired Zach away there, and then um, he was only there for a little while when he got hired by Ocean Way Nashville, oh, which man. is a huge beautiful, heavily funded studio because it's part of the sure. university. We're world class. To be, um, the, their chief tech is retiring and he's taking over for the chief tech. Wow. Be the chief, after being in Nashville like a year, basically, or a year and a half. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. So he, he really, he had it all. I was really lucky uh-huh. to have him here for a while. Yeah. So there are, um, there are interns. I've got a few now and sort of, looking to start up again in, in summer. And there's a few outside engineers. Yeah, Keith is working here. Mm-hmm. Um, Keith Kinnear. Keith sure. Kinnear. Yeah. Brian Woodring. I don't know. Do you know Brian? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Brandon Wired, who also used to have a studio around here, who's done really cool stuff. Um, so, Oh, and Yosef Diaz, who works here a fair amount, who's a fantastic jazz bass player and sequencer and musician in all mm-hmm. senses and he's been a great engineer too he's been doing a lot of the jazz sessions and um we're hoping to hoping to do more mm-hmm. more projects cool do, do uh most of your interns come from u of m or do they just cold call you yeah <laughs> it's just you know people may email i don't mm-hmm. do you get do you get yeah so mm-hmm. it's people email mostly um the problem um, is it only makes sense if you're living close to here mm-hmm. and have some other income right yeah. yeah it's just not it's not a good it's not a good job no. i mean it's <laughs> it's you, it, it's experience it's, it's a learning experience. yeah it's a learning yeah. experience but there's just a lot of time kind of mm-hmm. chewed up and um a lot of um it's not. It can't be very well scheduled. Mm-hmm. You know how it is because right. it's, it's like one week you're doing one thing and then another week's totally different. So, mm-hmm. um, it's a slow thing. I envy. Like, do you know? You know, Glenn Brown. Sure. You guys, the, Glenn Brown's. You know, great engineer mm-hmm. in the area, and um, he, I think, has a really tight, systematic intern mm-hmm. system, which I. I kind of envy, but I'm just not organized enough <laughs> to pull that off. Well, what interests- Oh, and there was a, there's another guy working here. He's not here. He's not going to be here much longer, but um, Nelson Gast, and he's mm-hmm. been, he's great with clients. He came from U of M, although not from the engineering part, from composition. Oh, I see. And uh, he's been great with mm-hmm. clients, and um, he does a lot of freelance stuff. Mm-hmm. What are the qualities that you find in someone- showing up to intern or assist or anything like that, that really help them make themselves useful and stick around. Right. That's a, that's a great Mm -hmm. question too. And I think that sort of goes back to, I wish I had come up through that Mm -hmm. official way of doing that where you, you go to a big studio and, Mm -hmm. and 
and you're first, you know, you just make coffee and then you assist and then you, but, um, you know, obviously as you, as you know, it's mostly personality. It's like, you don't want to scare the clients. Mm -hmm. You need to be comfortable with yourself and comfortable just sort of listening and following what's going on and what are the, what are the, uh, issues is the wrong word, but what are the things that you're trying to work on? Like what's, mm -hmm. what's difficult here and what are we trying to get and what's mm -hmm. not working and what's working. And then over time, be able to sort of anticipate what might happen next, what needs to get set up. Mm -hmm. Um, know what's, know, know what's broken. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a big engine assistant. To avoid it and yeah. you get bonus points if you can fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. What do you, do you have more thoughts on that? Is there, um, like, do you do interns? Yeah, absolutely. I've, yeah. I've interns from Western okay. Michigan, as well as people that just call me up. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, I, I tend to be a little picky because yeah. I have a pretty small studio. And if you're going to be taking up space in there, you got to be useful. Right. Um, I also, uh, you know, uh, have, very high standards for my client experience. And if someone is kind of messing with the vibe of the session, they right. are going to stick around. Right. You know? That's my, yeah, that's um, my, which is a combination of like being a fly on the wall and kind of like being invisible, but yet being like on the ball when something needs to get done. Right. You know, which is a difficult. Yeah, exactly. Thing to navigate. That, the, right. That thing of like the fly on the wall, like just sort of being, but being comfortable so that the client doesn't feel like, and mm -hmm. I don't feel like, geez, I'm wasting your time. Like you're just sort of hang out. So it has to be something that you have to be like, um, I'm sure there's some kind of Buddhist thing, like uh -huh. comfortably attentive, like sort right. of attentive to what's right. going on, but not, um, not in and, the way. Yeah. Not yeah. in the way. And I, I sort of feel like that for myself too. I, I don't want to get in the way of what people are trying to work out. And mm -hmm. a lot of times, you know, a lot of times I think, it's funny you see sometimes when there's a, when there's a lot of people like a band and then maybe they have friends or family there too and you're trying to solve something or somebody's trying to get a part or something and people that aren't used to the studio may voice their opinion about things and I always want to say like the reason we're not saying that is not because we don't understand that uh -huh. it's just right saying it isn't going to help in this situation. Right. So yeah, session etiquette and yeah, fact are very important. Yeah, it's it's um a lot of times you don't say stuff, a lot of times you do. I mean mm -hmm. Oh, I was gonna say oh, the other thing about singing that reminded me you, mm -hmm. you asked earlier about techniques. I try to make sure that we don't somehow it seems like in the old days, especially maybe more in rock bands, you like tracked and worked and worked and worked, and then at the very end of the project when you're sort of out of time, you're like, oh, okay, well, let's do the vocals. Mm -hmm. And so, especially on a longer term project, I always try to get people to like, hey, why don't you sing today? You know, you feel like if your voice feels low, sing maybe one of the low mm -hmm. songs. Or if your voice feels, if you feel this way, let's just throw some vocals down whenever they have time so that it's not like piled up at the end. And because, you know, again, mm -hmm. we were talking about like different ways that people get comfortable. Like some people their first couple of takes are going to be the best, even if it's overdubbing, mm. even if it's not alive. So you do it one day, maybe it's no good. It kind of takes the pressure off if you're thinking, well, you know, 
Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, half an hour we threw up a mic and you did a couple takes and maybe it's good, maybe it's not. And then we'll do that another day too. Mm-hmm. So it's a way to just sort of diffuse the pressure uh-huh. yeah. of like getting the take. Allowing people to feel comfortable enough that they have some freedom to to swing and miss or, yeah. you know, or, or whatever. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not on stage. They're not on a spotlight. They're in a workspace. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's a yeah. nice way to put it. I would love to hear some about the acoustic cafe shows that have been recorded here. Uh, tell me a little bit about that experience in that series. Oh, so that's been, that's been a great thing. I really lucked out with that. That's Rob Reinhardt has a show. He lives in Ann Arbor and he has um, artists that are coming through town or on promotional tours. They come in and play four songs um, typically and he does an interview and then he puts the show together at his house and it goes out once a week. It's on like a hundred stations. It's nationally syndicated and, um, or internationally syndicated. Um, and so we track it and mix it here and it ranges from a lot of just like, a, you know, woman and guitar, woman and piano, um, to a full band. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really fun because you get to hear amazing cool bands and they usually are kind of excited or they're happy if they haven't been here before because they're sort of expecting a radio thing which can mm. be awkward and they come in and it's a studio and so they're like oh what's the like can we use the whirly or you know let's let's do this and so they hopefully do different arrangements of the songs mm. from what they have on the record or what they're doing live and um we try to get it to sound, you know, good and acoustic-y. And yeah, so it's it's all live. Yeah. Uh, no audience in here? No. Right? He, so Acoustic Cafe, he, they, they also do it in front of a live audience um, at Leon Loft. So um, there's about maybe half a dozen shows a year at a, a business that's not far from here. And they have they built a little performance space that holds about 50 people or 75 people. Mm-hmm. And... Um, those are fun too. They're not as fun for me because because of the PA and liveness of it. Mm. I end up with like direct guitar, direct acoustic guitars, and mm-hmm. um, right so under bleed. And yeah, so I feel like I'm making the same bad live recording <laughs> that everybody else uh-huh. is. Right. Um, you know, whereas when it's in the studio, for the most part, we can you know you know how it is. You mm-hmm. can get taking a little time and at the cost of a little bleed, you can have pretty nice miking of everything mm-hmm. and get, you know, get a more, much more natural, interesting sound. Yeah. So when you set up for that, you're setting up for the band and you're setting up for Rob for an yep. interview yep. as well. Yep. Right? So um, again, depending on the situation, it'll be like sort of back and forth. Like if it's, especially if it's just one person, then mm-hmm. Rob will talk, they'll talk about something and then play an appropriate song and then go back talking. And then if it's, um, if it's a band, we'll set up the band and probably do the band first and then do an interview afterwards. But we, it's fast. I mean, it's always, um, basically we try to do the whole thing in an hour to two hours. Wow. So it's the whole setup with the band May you know if it's a big extensive thing and the band 
like sometimes the bands are just starting their tour. Mm. So they're kind of working out the songs anyway. And they kind of take advantage of being able to hear everything to be like, oh, let's do that again. Uh Uh, That's not feeling right. Uh Which is, that's cool too. I mean, to see people that, you know, are great, great artists going, nah, that's not, that's not working. Let's do something a little Uh different. Um, now that's really interesting to me because something I, I find a lot with more inexperienced musicians is they sort of feel this pressure to like step in front of the mic and nail it. And uh, uh, anytime I'm around more experienced musicians, especially really fantastic musicians, some of the best singers you've ever heard that do take after take and really yeah. dig into it and 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 chip away at it. To me, that's so instructive yeah. for younger musicians. Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing that's I know it's so it's so different because live. The goal is to not make a mistake. You know, the mistake is your demerit. Mm-hmm. So you make no mistakes, it's good. Mm-hmm. Studio, the as you know, I mean, the mistakes don't matter. You're just trying to get those high points. Mm-hmm. And then we're trying mm-hmm. to collect all the best high points and the the mistakes don't matter. Yeah. So it's it's a hard mindset to change. Do you do you play an instrument? Mm-hmm. What do you what do you play? uh guitar, bass, banjo, okay. string stuff. Because I don't know if you're like me, but after having said that, I know that when I'm playing guitar, I do slip a little bit into the other thing. Like, well, I don't want to make a mistake. Sure. sure. <laughs> so I definitely yeah. understand that. But I think what you're saying is true is that like experienced musicians, they're happy to just sort of play around with it and adjust mm-hmm. until, um, you know, until until it feels as good as it can. Yeah. Uh, who are some of the notable acts you've recorded in here for Acoustic Cafe? For Acoustic Cafe, okay, I'm terrible at this, <laughs> um, but I've got a couple on a list. Of- <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you've got the yeah, but- uh, I, I I know right off the top of my head that uh, you did a really nice Iron and Wine session. Yep, I believe Iron and Wine, and, uh, Ryan Adams, mm, um, Suzanne Vega, Suzanne believe, Vega, right? yeah. Um, I'd have to go look at the. Yeah. I might have to so go many. look at the list. No, because there are a lot. <laughs> You've the, done the one. Many, right? There was one that was just here that um, that I thought sounded pretty cool. That um, Anderson East, and that was the track that I was going to play you if you want to yeah. if you want to check that out. And that was fun because it was it's horns, piano, two guitars, drums, bass, and vocals all all live. Mm-hmm. Wow! So all in this one room here. That all in the room. In? I think. I was trying to remember what we did. I think that we put the drums in this sort of larger ISO booth, the mm-hmm. booth that's like piano sized. Mm-hmm. And then I may or may not have put the wall in. Uh-huh. Like sometimes I leave that wall open just so that everybody can still hear mm-hmm. without headphones. Um, but the piano was out mm-hmm. here in the room with the horns and everything else. Um, that's another thing which is interesting with Acoustic Cafe is by far most musicians prefer to not have headphones. Oh, interesting. Well, maybe not by far. And it oh. depends on the situation. If Obviously, if it's a loud band, you mm-hmm. need it. But um, I don't know if it's because they've been scarred by bad headphones experience, but <laughs> I think, I think more likely have. it's just, you know, it's easier to sing if you can hear yourself and it's easier to play guitar if you hear your amp right mm-hmm. next to you. And if you hear it the way you're used to hearing, I always think it's a funny thing that 
when we go to actually document what musicians do, we go, okay, first thing is you're not going to get to hear yourself like you usually do. You're going to have to wear <laughs> headphones. Uh-huh. And Let's take you out of your comfort zone yeah, right off the bat. Let's just bat. right off the bat. And then like, let's try to get something really good. The one thing you depend on being uh-huh, able to hear yourself right. perform, we're going to get rid of that. Right. Well, it's interesting. Monitoring is so important, and, and uh, uh, you know, I can tell that in the way you, you talk about the sessions, and also you have these, uh, you know, headphone mixers here for people, and and uh, uh, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes the headphone mix is more important than the main mix. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's it's yeah. although I'm having this downside to these mixers now because, and I'm sure you've experienced this, but by giving everybody their own mix, they can really give themselves a mix that makes them perform differently mm-hmm. <laughs> in a mm-hmm. not good way, you uh-huh. know, because the tendency is to turn yourself up. And then they turn themselves up so much that, that they aren't playing with yeah, dynamics. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yep. So it's it's touchy. I, there was a band, in, oh, Head and the Heart was in, and they spent a long time trying to get the headphones balanced. And they're kind of a, they were a tricky band because mm-hmm. they have a lot of different instrumentation. Each person plays a lot of different instruments. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was an acoustic cafe that ran a little longer, mm-hmm. not too long, but, um, and they said that they're, when they recorded their last record, the producer wouldn't let them have separate mixes for like the first week or something. Wow. He made them all have one mix <laughs> which we didn't like and like yeah i can tell <laughs> like, <laughs> uh-huh. cool well well let's take a listen to this anderson east track and check okay. this out yeah Never fit quite naturally. We didn't come with directions. Somehow we found perfection, and it all worked out just how it's meant to be. Through the passion, and through the fights, the wrong turns we made right. There's one thing, one thing left you. Mr. Chalice The beauty's all gone Time goes back to fast When the feeling's all wrong And the troubles don't seem to pass We got each other, it'll be alright We got the love to make it through the night Open, never mentioned and never spoken. And only we know where we'd like to hide the keys. And no wind could ever weather was holding us together as long as we live in our own reality. And this to Love to make it through the night 
Anderson East from the Acoustic Cafe series here, all playing live together at Big Sky. Uh, beautiful, beautiful recording. Love the sense of space around everything. It's really natural and close, but not totally dry and claustrophobic. Thanks. Um, Thanks. You know, uh, you mentioned while we were listening back to that that the uh, singer was on SM7 and yep. also playing guitar. Yep. The uh, the SM7 does a fantastic job at getting a really clear vocal sound in a room full of people playing, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, SM7 is almost always, you know, the right choice. Yeah. It's almost. And oh, that's another thing with acoustic cafe and vocals. I try to always ask the singers if they have any mic preferences. Mm. Um, some singers, you know, a lot of singers now at this point they know what they like or mm-hmm. what they don't like, and some people you know, don't sound good on Neumann's or, mm-hmm. and I think that SM7 is, I'm sure you've found like everybody sounds pretty good on SM7. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was this Yamaha piano here, this beautiful grand that we have here in the room. Uh, you, you know, it, it's so cool to me, the, uh, the art and ability to record a band together live and embrace the bleed that you get between instruments uh, instead of, being afraid of it, you know, yeah. uh, and, and I assume that that's something that's integral to the acoustic cafe sessions is having to deal with that, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. And there's, I think, really, it first sank into me when I did a live blues album with a band, and I hadn't mm-hmm. really, I was, I was probably one of those engineers that was, you know, dead set against bleed, and I did this live blues record, which I didn't. I they, actually we hired a nice mobile truck. And then it's like when I was mixing that, it's like you know what, this, the bleed doesn't hurt. It's mm-hmm. fine. You can make you can you can mix you can make a nice record with bleed. And then it's, I think ever since then I sort of went down the road of like it's okay. And I think I mean like you and Tyler and a lot of guys, and Jim Jim Roll are people that are just like so expert at that, mm-hmm. like nice. making that work. And and 
It does. It goes back to what we were talking about before about making the band comfortable because we can get people close together. And mm -hmm. like we were talking about not wearing headphones, you know, if it's, if it's three people playing, you know, two guitars and a mandolin or something, and they're all going to sing, if they can just sit right together in mm -hmm. here and um, play without headphones, they'll be so much happier and mm -hmm. sound so much more in tune and blended. Yeah. Then if we try to separate them and stick them in different rooms and, mm -hmm. and then try to add reverb to them later to make up for that. Right. But um, there's definitely, I know Tyler was, I think, giving me a little of, or he wasn't really giving me the details, but saying that you were very careful about like vocal bleed into guitars and guitar bleed. And as am I for Acoustic Cafe, that's like the problem. Mm -hmm. And as I'm sure people that have recorded stuff at home or... The problem is when you have two mics that are close together picking up one source, the the problem we have is that, as as you guys know, is that you get like a phasey sound because the sound is getting to the second mic just a millisecond or mm -hmm. two later than the first mic, which is about the length of a flanger mm -hmm. not right. moving. <laughs> and, and it just leads to a really sad mm. situation. So what, what we've engineers that do this you know we've learned these tricks especially with figure eight mics mm -hmm. because they on the figure eight mics pick up from the front and the back but from the side you know they don't pick up at all they're really good at not picking up from the side so depending on how you place them you can keep the vocalist out of their guitar and then it becomes more of a geometry problem when you have multiple people in the room and you want to keep the other vocalist out of the guitar mm -hmm. too, and they're right. in a different position, but you can, you know, if you're sort of thinking about it and you get lucky, you can usually keep everybody out of the close mics mm -hmm. and you pick up more of the room. Then that's the trade-off, mm -hmm. obviously, as you, as you know, mm -hmm. you, you're going to get more of the, the sound bouncing in from the room, but that sounds, that's just a room. It's yeah. not bad. Yeah. It's not Especially that, if you have a nice sounding room. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. one thing if the bleed you're getting from one instrument to the other sounds nasty. Yeah. But if it's a nice sounding room, you know, it, it, I feel like it's the kind of thing where I'm always trying to control it a little bit, but yeah. not eliminate it. Right. You know? Yeah, me too. I mean, that's, yeah. the, you can't see, but there's a bunch of different baffles of different mm -hmm. heights and sizes mm -hmm. in here. And, um, so. Yeah. You need mixability. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, figure eights have been quite a revelation for me too over the years. When yeah. I started, I hardly ever used them, uh, and and then the more that I got into recording bands together live, yeah. the more I realized how useful they are. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, you can really aim them at stuff. It's crazy. Yeah, or even like horn sections, which you know, I shouldn't admit that I'm close micing them too, but you know, you're close micing <laughs> uh -huh. them or fairly close, uh -huh. and that figure eight again can be great to keep the guys that are mm -hmm. next to them out of their mics. So yeah, I love, I love the figure eight. Mm -hmm. I got to think uh, the, the combination of the directionality of microphones you're using, whether it's cardioid figure eight, you know, whatever, uh, I assume you don't use many omnis in a live band in a room situation, but mm. um, between that and the placement of the musicians, you're really able to, I mean, you know, that that's a lovely mix there. There's, you know, there, there's, there's clearly, enough bleed to make it feel glued and live, but enough separation that you're able to re really fine tune the mix yeah, of it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. I mean, it's also, that was an easier situation 
because as we've all found, it's a thing of like, is everybody more or less the same volume? Like electric mm-hmm. guitars, loudish singer, fairly loud on the drums. So everything's kind of medium loud. It gets tough. Like, you know, like jazz is a classic problem with upright bass is just a quiet instrument mm-hmm. compared to a jazz drum set mm. you know so it's just really hard to not isolate mm-hmm. an upright bass somewhat at least the around the bottom of it so that you're blocking right. the drums from the mic but and same thing with um acoustic cafe if somebody's like a really quiet guitar player and a really loud singer it's it's tough mm-hmm. and it it may not be it may not be pretty. Right. <laughs> may, may have to use some of that direct yeah. <laughs> direct yeah. acoustic guitar. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned jazz. I know that you, you've recorded a lot of jazz combos in here. How, how do you approach that? Like, how do you deal with, like, you know, piano and drums, like, getting into each other and that kind of thing? Yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, that's why we mm-hmm. built the piano mm-hmm. booth, so we could put the piano in there. Because otherwise, we were, we did a few records where we put the drums in the smaller dead vocal booth, mm-hmm. and they don't. I mean, it's a sound, mm-hmm. but it's I, you know, it's not it's not great. It's mm-hmm. not as good as it should have been or yeah. could be. So, um, we thought it was worth building this whole booth for the piano just to be able to isolate that. Because mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, the piano just becomes a big drum mic, right? <laughs> Although you can, I mean, you can drape it and close it and really, you know, people made records like that. Mm-hmm. All the famous, you know, a lot of those famous Rudy Van Gelder records, the Blue Note records, are small. Guys are all close together. Mm-hmm. I did a session a long time ago, a swing band, and they brought in an engineer producer, Mike Napolitano, I think, who had done a lot of stuff with Daniel Lenoir, and he was really expert at using the room and working the room. And his his thinking in general for that kind of session was you just need to be placing the mic that's going to get the bleed where it's getting good bleed that mm. like that's where you'd mic the kit from as a room mic oh, anyway uh-huh. and that's going to be where you're going to put the vocal i mean it's a lot of getting lucky and getting everything right but mm. he he that's sort of the way he thought about it um that's really interesting. So I haven't come to that level yet. I've never made it all the way up there. No, that's brilliant. That that's Isn't really it? kind of like the next level of embracing the bleed is yeah. to say I'm going to make the bleed useful. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. yeah. So that was his, and same thing with horns or, you know, mm-hmm. um, hor- yeah, horn bleed or to anything. Mm-hmm. It was to sort of think everything out in terms of this is where I'd want this bleed because it's mm-hmm. supposed to be a roomy sound. Yeah. Well, it's such an important skill to have because, you know, it's it's on a technical level, it's far easier to just separate stuff and have all the options in the world for how you're going to mic everything. But, you know, in, in the real world, musicians like to play together. Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, to be able to not only facilitate that, but really have it not hinder the quality of your recording is essential. Yeah. I think yeah. to get really beautiful performances out of a lot of musicians. Yeah. No, I I, yeah. I totally agree. And it's something that I'm working on forever. I mean, we're all working <laughs> we all on it. Yeah. We're all trying to yep. get it figured out. Uh, there was another engineer, um, uh, e- Jesus, and I should know the name of the band he produced too, <laughs> but You're on he's the spot. just, just recently, he's a, he's a producer. He, he produced a Ryan Adams record and, uh, he's, 
done a ton of projects. And we were doing a, a song where there's piano and vocal. And he showed me like, which I should have thought of this years ago, but it's actually the way the piano's mic'd right now. It seems so bloody obvious is you put the mics up by the hammers mm-hmm. pointing exactly away from the vocalist. Oh, that's interesting. I've never thought about that either. Yeah, it's like, of course, because you don't want the vocal coming through the... Yeah. Because sometimes that's an issue if it's a pretty loud singer at a piano. Mm. um, You can get that sort of, you know, sort of that odd bleed coming, bouncing off the lid and coming around in the piano. So um, I started doing that. So, I mean... I got to yeah. get out more. <laughs> it seemed <laughs> it seemed so obvious after he right. did it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I never thought of that either. That's fantastic. Right on. Well, hey, I'm I'm glad I got out today <laughs> to hear the big sky and and got to uh, uh, learn some of these techniques from you. I'm so grateful for your time. Jeff. Oh, thank, thank you. you. It's a pleasure. I I love yeah. the recordings you make. Oh, so it's a thank I'm you. Like really, really glad you could come. For more on Jeff, check out BigSkyRecording.com. You've been listening to Electricians and Mad Men. Today's interview was recorded at Big Sky in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Our featured recording was This Too Shall Pass by Anderson East, live on Acoustic Cafe. Our theme music was written and performed by Brian Koenigsnecht. For show notes, links, and more episodes, visit electriciansandmadmen.com. I'm Ian Gorman of La Luna Recording and Sound. Thanks for listening.